This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So I have, I pulled a missing person from your list today. This is actually interesting because this missing person, he never left my, my Israel keys list, but I, I, I did kind of rule him out based on the insanity around what was happening, but I never really officially checked him off due to like, uh, the idea we got into this thing with Gregory David White, where it was like. I got hung up on the words, if you know a place, meaning like if you in the past have gotten familiar with a place. And so this case today, it probably isn't related to Israel Keys at all, but it's a Christmas missing person. And uh, it's a familiar place. It takes place in Yakima, Washington, which is Yakima County. So... This guy goes into NamUs January 17th, 2010. That's unusual for a lot of these cases because he goes missing December 25th, 2009. And he still falls into that category of being slightly higher side of a middle-aged man. So his NamUs case is 4753. He's a six foot to six foot two Caucasian male. He's 195 to 200 pounds, according to uh, what Namus has about him. He's got gray hair that's pretty short and a mustache, and he has hazel eyes. Um, he does occasionally wear glasses, and he had an opal ring on his ring finger that would stand out. He had prominent scars on his left knee and on the right side of his neck. Uh, the gentleman we're talking about today... Uh, he was 57 years old when he went missing. He would be 70 years old if he were alive today. If he is alive today. And uh, he has no in- investigator attached to his case at this time. But he does have several pictures. And uh, I think there was a missing persons poster somewhere in the name of the Charlie Project files. Uh, this is Lawrence J. Regal. R-I-E-G-E-L. Uh, he went by Larry. The circumstances of his disappearance were that Larry was last seen by his mother at home on Christmas Day. 
He made contact by phone with several family members and friends that day as well. He promised to see them the next day at a family gathering they were having, but he never showed up. He has not been seen or heard from since then. Uh, And they made a note in Namus that Larry is a very social person and he made contact almost daily with his son and close friends. He made very regular contact uh, and visits with his mother and other family and friends. And not even his neighbors had seen him since Christmas. There's a, there's a little bit about Larry on the internet. At one point in time, there was a fine Larry Regal, uh, website. Uh, he was on project Jason, Washington, missing adults, Charlie project, Namus, the Yakima Herald. Um, and there are a couple of news articles about him. If we go over to the, uh, Charlie project and, and look around, they have a few more pictures associated with them. Uh, and they state more definitively that he was 6'2", 200 pounds. But they also state that he was disabled at the time of his disappearance due to a neck injury and that he is an alcoholic. He has the, So the scars uh, on this are a little bit different description. He has surgical scars on his left knee and a prominent vertical scar on his neck from recent surgery to fix four broken vertebrae. He limps on his left leg. And so I'm going to run through what... Char- Do you have anything to that point, or you want me to just put out the Charlie Project part? Because they go into a little more detail. Yeah, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Larry, just like I just said, uh, last seen December 25th, 2009, he's talking to everybody that day on phone, on the phone, except for his mom. He sees her in person. Uh, and this is where he promises to attend a family gathering. Now, where Charlie Project expands on the name of description is this. His girlfriend, Ladina Mann, stated that he argued he became upset and left their shared home in the 1500 block of South 12th Avenue, and he's never been heard from again. Larry worked as a contract pilot for Cub Crafters, but because of the recent neck surgery he had, his pilot's, li- his pilot's license had been suspended. He had lived in uh, Yakima his whole life, and he frequented several area bars and that included max's boomers the old town pump and the james games james gang tavern none of his bank accounts have been used his phone has not been used one of the problems that authorities had here was that ladina man used his ebt card several times in the weeks after he vanished and spent around fifteen hundred dollars in public assistance money uh, EBT cards and electronic benefits transfer card. It could be food stamps. It could be disability benefits short term. It could be uh, welfare benefits of some kind. There's several different things that could be on an EBT card in Washington state. She also filled out an EBT card eligibility form because if you're on these benefits short term, sometimes you have to certify the benefits each month. And so... I don't know if they're stating specifically that it's an eligibility form or that it's the certification of benefits, but ultimately she stated that Larry still lived with her, although he'd been missing for two months by the time she's doing this eligibility. So she gets charged with welfare fraud. She gets charged with perjury and she gets charged with false verification. But because of this whole situation, um, the charges are ultimately dismissed Uh, She has to repay the money and she completes a diversion program, but she doesn't end up with a criminal record because of this. In a media interview after her arrest, Ladina stated that Regal had a drinking problem and claimed that he had assaulted her 
the night that he disappeared. She attempted to file a police report about the alleged domestic violence incident on January 10, 2010, but this is a few weeks after Larry had disappeared. She had no injuries and there were no witnesses beside herself, so the police said there wasn't enough evidence to bring a case. Ladina has claimed that Larry contacted several people, including his boss, her cub crafters, uh, in the months after his disappearance. And she believes that he's alive and his family is aware of his whereabouts. She speculated that he was either in Idaho or Montana at the time. Uh, she is considered a person of interest in Larry's disappearance. But foul play is suspected in this case as it's out of character for him to leave without warning. And as of right this second, his case remains unsolved. Right. And so um, at the time he disappeared, like you said, he was 57 years old, right? And that, uh, it's, it's a, I mean, it's on the edge, but he would still be considered invulnerable. But one of the things that I always take into consideration is what the sort of characteristics in my mind of what are they invulnerable to. Right. And I would say that um, my whole like middle-aged man can take care of themselves situation. I feel like they all have a soft underbelly for anybody that could have direct contact with them. As far as yeah, yeah. That that increases their vulnerability, right? I'm uh when I when I say that you know the most invulnerable population is a is a healthy man uh you know that has all of his physical facilities about him and is not impaired in any way. Um, that is to some sort of stranger trying to abduct them and kill them, right? Yeah. Um, if you sleep next to somebody, everybody's has the same vulnerability, right? <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, it's not funny. It's just um, clarifying that because I know um, sometimes I have things clear in my head. But there, there's a couple of things about this situation that are interesting. Uh, he was last seen on Christmas Day. Uh and his family immediately missed him, right? Yeah. Uh, as soon as he was not doing normal things. And his family, I think he has four sisters. Uh, I'm not sure if that's all of his siblings, but he has four sisters. And at least at a point recently, their mother was still alive. And they have been, you know, rallying for him to be found, yeah, they've kept, they've done a really good job keeping this in the local media. This has not ever blown up and been a big national story, but right. they have done a really good job trying to keep his name out there. They've had a reward for information. I think at some point they raised the reward. Um, so you know, this man is missed sorely yeah. by his family, and I. So I would say you know he's purported to be an alcoholic. And, you know, whatever. Uh, then the whole using the EBT card and then trying to get her own EBT card, but saying that he still live with her and then trying to report domestic abuse allegations uh, like three it, weeks later. It's pretty suspect. It's almost like uh, she knows that the hammer's coming down on her and... She's trying to give herself a story, right? 
I would tend to agree with what you're saying there. Yeah. Without those extra steps, like for example, if she called the police the night of it happened, right? Because she was saying that um, they got in, let's see, she, she claimed he assaulted her on the night he disappeared, right? Yeah. And so if she had called the police then and like that had been documented somehow and he had actually left, right? Um, that would be one thing. The problem is her one-sided story, it doesn't support what everybody else is saying, which while he may have left her, he wasn't going to leave everybody in his life. No. So he's real active in, in their family. And as of 2019, the family actually put a, a billboard up for uh, in Eastern Washington near where he lived. And Cecilia Downey gave several interviews at that time to the Seattle times. And I think NBC news talked about their efforts and them searching for him. He, he's definitely missed. And that's around the time I think they took the, uh, the reward up. So that's 2019. They're still looking for him at the, on the 10 year anniversary. They're not going to stop. Uh, you would think at some point that the cops would either charge her, her and try and make something out of that. You know what I mean? Like, Well, and that's sort of – I feel like the fraud was a step in the right direction. Um, you see that a lot of times when there's questionable circumstances that – like while they can't like – you know, because they haven't found his body. They can't say for certain he's dead and he was murdered. But, but like, they have described it as a death investigation in their search warrants. Did you notice that and that starts happening around 2016 when they start searching in houses? When, well, right. And so here's the different, here's the thing. Right off the bat, my understanding of this case is that his, his living, she lived with him, right? His living yeah. girlfriend doesn't report him missing. They go and they start thinking and trying to figure it out. And, you know, it's not long. And they're like, well, you know, his mom saw him on Christmas day. And then like his son didn't hear from him. And it's like very quickly something's wrong, except not from her. Right. Okay. And while he might have been done with her, he wasn't going to be done with his mom. He wasn't going to be done with his son. And whatever happened, it's weird because it's like a whole thing to get rid of the six foot tall man, right? Oh, yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I've seen uh, his girlfriend's picture. And that, it makes me think that I don't feel like she could have done it all by herself. I, I don't know. Yeah. So, so the family had a farm and the farm was being rented out. And from what I read, there's some indication that potentially the farm, because they don't live there, but they had lived there. It's so like a little 10 acre farm where there were phone calls between Larry and the renter. And like some of the last calls seem to be to this guy who potentially owes $3,000. And then there's, I wondered if like, maybe there's not some kind of collusion between two parties 
related to this. They did say it will be easy to find Larry because that neck surgery is so recent that it would be obvious um, if you if you were to find like his vertebrate intact. But did you read that? Do what now? Because of his neck surgery, mm-hmm. if you were to find his body, yeah, it would be easy to verify it was him because of the oh, surgery. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I was aware of that. So I'm wondering if, if you've got a guy who's had surgery, there might be, you know, ways to get it over on him, but then you're still back to where you pointed it out. How do you get rid of that big of a body that where nobody ever finds it? Right. And I, so, you know, I, I don't know the pieces of that puzzle. I imagine the police don't either. Maybe in, you know, at New Year's of 09, just a week after he disappeared, it wasn't, you know, entirely clear what had happened. Yeah. Um, I feel like now, though, looking back, you know, 100%, um, she has information, right? Uh, yeah. And it, there's no denying it. If she didn't have information, um, she would have information leading to someone else's involvement, you see what I'm saying? It's just the way oh, yeah. that it went down. She should know more than he just like left that night. Or, I mean, if he did leave that night, she, there could still be more she could help with. And, and that hasn't happened. And the other thing is like, let's say they really did get into a fight and he left and he got hit by a car. Right. Um, if he left on foot, if he had been drinking, left on foot. And I'm saying all this and I'm completely making it up, but I'm just throwing out scenarios. So what did they do with this body, right? The people that hit him, you see, it's just sort of yeah. like that doesn't really make sense. And um, because of her, it's really her activity afterwards um, to, it looks so much like she's trying to cover her own tuchus, right? Yeah. And I hate it that it was probably, you know, she would have had to have probably shot him, I would imagine. I I don't know that she would have been successful in any other way, maybe stabbed him. I don't know. But it doesn't sound to me like they got, like, search warrants or anything like that, right? At at least not immediately to to find, like, where there might be signs of. No. So there are search warrants out there. But um, the way that they read, if you go through the, the news article, it's it's years after the fact. It's even after she's been arrested for something else when they start, like, actually digging through things. It's, it's years later. There are some chances for them to have warrants, like, kind of early on. Somewhere in the middle of it all, they had cadaver dogs go but i think it i I think even that's three or four years later and at that point it's too late right yeah july 2013 is when they put the cadaver dog well yeah it's too late well okay if there's human remains around it's not too late but for cadaver dogs to find it but you're right in terms of evidence at that point in time of the actual acts surrounding his disappearance in 2009 you're three and a half years too late. And that's really the, that's when the evidence that would be needed to now have this, 
now have charges against the person last seen with the person, that's when that evidence would have needed to have been gathered, right? Yeah, I think so. You've got a situation where his family has put out a reward for information. And if anybody knew anything, they absolutely would have come forward. And you have to think in cases like that, it doesn't always apply. But, you know, who's going to know something? Well, it's only going to be the person who did it and the person who immediately assisted her, right? Yeah. And there's going to be some leverage there. While I say, like, people always talk, I have a feeling something's going on that might prevent that from happening. I, I don't know what it might be, but it probably goes along the lines with, like, whatever reasoning they had for killing this guy, right? Yeah, um, I'm sure it's like... <sighs> the other thing is, it's interesting because... Who, like, let's say that the okay, if I if my husband really did like walk out the door one night and not come back, the very last thing that I would do would be like, oh, he assaulted me that night and he was an alcoholic, and like, I would not like slam him. Yeah, if he had legitimately left, I'd be like, where the hell is he? Right? <laughs> because you. You see what I'm saying? Like it's a oh, yeah. weird spin for her to put that on him. It's almost like she's she's saying, "Well, he was just you know bad, right?" Well, who does that to somebody that's missing? Unless you're trying to skew it. It's just that's just my opinion. I'm with you on it. I mean, I whenever the very first thing out of a significant other's mouth is bad about the missing person, you have to question that motive. I think. I, I would I would think so. So I saw that okay, this is interesting to me. There were multiple persons of interest in this case. So I'll just say this is sort of the the, the end of it, uh, from my perspective. Because I don't know that I like I could talk about this all day long. He fits a lot of things that you and I have talked about over the years. Ultimately, the tenants were the last phone call, I believe. And that puts them Whoever the tenants of the farm are, they become persons of interest as well as Ladina. And I'm not so sure that those two things are individual or together or not, but, but they're, they're listed. Um, the places that they've searched are related to Ladina. And my thing about uh, guys like him is I don't want them to be forgotten. I had a grandparent who was very similar to, uh, to, to Larry. And I don't want them to be forgotten. And, you know, anytime somebody says, well, he's still alive, he's over there and blah, 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 that immediately raises my hackles. Plus all the things that you just pointed out. Um, I want people like this to be uh, thought of just like everyone else in the world when it comes to these missing persons cases and found. Like, that's really what I want out of all of it. And I, it's Christmas time. Um, this guy had a family who will definitely be missing him this Christmas. Like you said, his sisters, uh, they appear in multiple news articles talking about him. And I, you know, I can't help but wonder like where someone, if Ladina man did something to him, I don't know where they were like coming from. I think maybe they're disconnected from the world in a way that they don't understand what was going to happen when he went missing. This guy had 75 missed calls the week after Christmas, 2009 on his phone. 
75 missed phone calls. Right. And just because he got upset with her, he did not cut off everybody in his life. Right. And like, in fact, if you were to cut your significant other off, you would be calling your son and your mom and your siblings more if that's what you do. Right. Yeah. To let them know where you were and what you're doing. Exactly. And so it's, it's very one-sided, um, which obviously I feel like anybody that's kind of, you know, enthralled in some sort of weird situation like this, like his girlfriend would find herself, like she's going to be a very one-sided person, right? She's got like probably lots of justifications for, you know, if she were to be honest, why she did what she did. It's just none of them really, you know, are justified justifications. They're just things that you tell yourself, right? Um, as far as like, oh, well, he was mean to me. He was an alcoholic, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You know, at the end of the day, I don't know what benefit she got out of it. It seems like um, maybe not much. And I, I just, I, I don't know. I would like to think though it was stress of a situation, right? Um, yeah. That was the result of a snap on her part or whatever. But see, when things like that happen afterwards, when they don't ever come clean about it now, yeah, I mean, granted she's getting away with it if she did it right. She got away with it so far. Um, but I don't know that, um, when you genuinely like, would take something back that you would be able to keep it in like that because of the damage you're doing to like everybody else in this man's life. Does that make sense? Yeah. You gotta be pretty damaged to be able to pull all of that off. Um, and, and it, it is from somebody that's really one-sided um, because if you, if you, if something legitimately happened to where it was self-defense or like, just accidental or in the heat of passion or, or the heat of the moment, like that's when you like, I feel like have the best chance of leniency when you come clean immediately. Right. Yeah. Um, because while she is, I've made the presumption that being the last person seen and based on what's out there about her story, she probably knows what happened to him. Like she hasn't been free. Like she's not being punished for this crime, but she, um, she's having to live with the overcast of it and you know, whatever. I mean, that was her position. Uh, but if, um, if Larry were, Alive today, he would be 70 years old. Yeah. And um, he has a birthday, uh, December 15th. He turned 71 this year. And he was 57 when he went missing. And he has a lot of people missing him. <sighs> Man, I you know, this one, I because I had seen him before, like, I never... I never really was able to put, to wrap my head around like what she would have done to get rid of them. But uh, I, I hope that if, and I was looking, did you see if she was still alive? I didn't find an obituary for her. Talking about Ladina, man. I, I, I feel like she is still alive. Yeah. Yeah. I think we would, I think, I think the family would have announced that they do. Um, so they used to have a website that would find, uh, 
LarryRegal.com. But they've moved that over to Facebook. And it's uh, they. You can go on there and see um, what they're asking for. They don't really. They're not really asking for money. They're asking for people's eyes. Uh, they do regularly put up uh, different billboards, and they, they kind of capture them all there. And there's a lot of family on there, um, and, and there's a lot of people on there that regularly engage about Larry. I, I recommend that. It's um, uh, it's an absolutely heartbreaking story. But that's that's I think that's all I have for this particular uh, missing person. Did you have anything else for this one? No, I don't think so. I do have an exoneration for today. It's a more recent one, and I'm going to go ahead and be upfront with everybody. I have no idea how to say the exoneree's name. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick away. I'm gonna sort of pick a lane there and go with it because that's sort of one of the aspects of the case that comes up. So today's exoneration comes out of Philadelphia County, Pennsylvania, and it is a murder charge in 2010. At the time of the crime, the age uh, in terms of demographics uh, is 21 is this particular uh, exoneree, and he is a black male, and he was sentenced to life in prison. He gets convicted in 2012, and he's exonerated over the course of 2023. The uh, there's no DNA, there's no DNA evidence contributing to his exoneration. His official uh, contributing factors are perjury or false accusation, and then official misconduct. And I had not heard of this case at all when I started hunting into it. It's in it's a very interesting case that I think touches at a lot of uh, hot button topics. So I'm just going to dive into this and sort of describe what happened. At about 4 a.m. on August 28th of 2010, 18-year-old Charles Britton and 30-year-old Edward Humphrey were standing together on the sidewalk near 26th Street in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Nearby down 26th Street, 26-year-old Jonathan Wilson was sitting in his parked car making phone calls. Shortly afterwards, two men on bicycles rode by on 26th Street, and they opened fire with handguns. Britton and Humphrey ducked behind parked cars, and Britton shot back with a 380 pistol. The gunmen rode off on their bicycles. Britton and Humphrey were uninjured, but Wilson was shot once in the back. He drove off, but he soon lost control, and he crashed into a pole on Sterner Street, just west of 26th Street. He was pronounced dead at Temple Hospital at 4.42 a.m. At the scene, police collected 17 9mm shell casings, one 9mm live round, one 380 caliber shell casing, and one spent bullet. Firearms analysis later indicated that the 9mm casings came from two different weapons, and that the 380 caliber shell came from a third weapon. About a, blo- about a block and a half northeast at 25th and Somerset, police recovered seven 380 caliber shell casings, six 9mm shell casings, and one 9mm live round. Firearms analysis would later indicate that 9mm casings were fired by one of the 9mm guns in the other shooting. The 380 caliber casings bore insufficient markings for further comparison. 
No guns were ever recovered that could be linked to any of these casings. At 6.20 a.m., detectives received an anonymous telephone call that said the man who shot Wilson was named Dante. And I'm going to put this in quotes for a second. D-A-N-T-E. That's important later on. And he lived in a home with an enclosed porch on 25th Street near Somerset. At 6.35 a.m., another call came in, and the caller said that he had just called. The caller said that the shooting was a result of a dispute between, quote, Dante and two other men. The caller identified these other men as Charles Britton and, quote, Beans, and said that two weeks earlier, an argument involving the three at a playground ended with a shootout. The caller said that the following day, quote, Dante had tried to shoot Britton and Beans, but had shot two men named George and John John instead. Police determined that this shooting referred to the shooting of Kenneth Richardson and John Jones on August 10th, on August 16th of 2010. Both men had survived, but both men were unable to describe their gunman, the gunman. Police conducted firearms analysis on the shell casings recovered in the shooting of Richardson and Jones and concluded that the casings were fired by the they were fired by the other 9mm weapon used in the shooting of Jonathan Wilson. On October 10th of 2020, Philadelphia police detective Ronald Dove interviewed John Jones. According to the statement Jones gave, he said the shooters were, quote, Dante, D-O-N-T-E, and Kizzy, K-I-Z-Z-Y. So there's Dante, D-A-N-T-E, and now there's Dante, D-O-N-T-E. John Jones said that Charles Britton told him that the word on the street was that, quote, Dante, with an O, had killed Jonathan Wilson. Jones reviewed, Jones then reviewed photographs on a police computer, and he identified a photograph of 20-year-old, 21-year-old Danta, D-O-N-T-A, registers, R-E-G-U-S-T-E-R-S, as, quote, Dante, D-O-N-T-E. John Jones would later deny that he signed this statement, and he would say that the statement was false. On October 12, 2010, Detective Philip Nordo took Charles Britton out of the Philadelphia County Jail, where he was being held after having been arrested on October 7th on a drug charge. At the time, Britton was facing multiple charges. He had a criminal history that made him ineligible to obtain a gun license. He also was prohibited because he was too young. What happened during this interview would be disputed. According to Philip Nordo, he said that Britton told him he had fired the 380 caliber gun several times during the shooting that killed Jonathan Wilson. Subsequently, Nordo said that Charles Britton gave a statement saying that he and Humphrey were on the street where, quote, Dante and Kizzy rode by and opened fire. Humphrey identified a photograph of Dante registers as Dante and a photograph of Kyle Peltzer as Kizzy. On, on October the 13th of 2010, Detective Nordo interviewed Humphrey 
who was living in a drug treatment facility at the time and under state supervision as a result of a robbery conviction. He had been sentenced to five to 10 years in prison for that robbery conviction. Nordo had Humphrey brought to the station, and according to the detective, Humphrey eventually gave a statement identifying Danta and Kyle as the gunman. Humphrey's statement was slightly different from Charles Britton's statement. In fact, Humphrey's statement included other details, such as that there were three others with Danta registers and that Danta was on a bike while Kyle Pelzer was on foot. And he said that he had known Danta for about three years, but did not know Kyle. Danta and Kyle were arrested on November 4th of 2010. They were charged with the non-fatal shootings of Richardson and Jones, as well as the shooting that killed Jonathan Wilson. The charges included murder, attempted murder, aggravated assault, conspiracy to commit murder, and criminal possession of an instrument of a crime. In March of 2011, Dante and Kyle went to trial together in the Philadelphia County Court of Common Pleas for both shootings. By that time, Charles Britton was dead, shot to death. So the prosecution introduced the testimony he had given at a preliminary hearing. In that testimony, Charles had denied knowing who had killed Jonathan Wilson. He had also denied being with Humphrey at the time of the shooting, saying he was further down the street at his aunt's home. Charles had admitted making the statement to Detective Nordo, but had said the answers were all lies. He testified that Nordo had promised that he would not be charged for having fired the 380 caliber pistol. Humphrey testified at the trial that he and two others, neither of them Britain, were in front of his home on West Silver Street where he heard when he heard gunshots down the street. He said he ran into his home and he remained there until the gunfire stopped. I didn't see who was firing the shots. I don't know how many shooters there were, Humphrey testified. Like Britton, Humphrey said his previous statement was false and the result of police coercion. He said that he was kept in a room for six hours before he was interviewed by Nordo. He said he was getting interrogated and telling homicide detectives over and over, I don't know what is going on. That was until I started started getting threatened them asking me and me staying there two or three days, I didn't get fed. Humphrey subsequently admitted he actually was there for close to a day. Humphrey said that Detective Philip Nordo had promised to get him out of the treatment center and to, quote, set him up with a security job. During cross-examination, Kyle's defense attorney asked, you have an armed robbery conviction. How are they hooking you up with a security job? Humphrey replied, I have no idea. That is the statement that came out of his mouth. Humphrey testified that the description of, quote, Dante, D-O-N-T-E, in his statement, was provided by Philip Nordo, and that the photo of Dante registers he selected was heavily suggested by the police. Humphrey did not make an in-court identification of Dante. When the prosecutor suggested that during a pretrial meeting with Humphrey, Humphrey had mentioned a, quote, no snitching code, Humphrey responded, I didn't tell you I was familiar with the code. We had a conversation that you brought up. I didn't tell you anything about that. To rebut the recantations by Britton and Humphrey and allow their statements to be admitted into evidence, Detective Nordo was called to testify. 
He said he transcribed both interviews as they happened, word for word. There was no electronic recording of either interview. Nordo said that Britton and Humphrey refused to give consent for such recording, although there was no record of such a refusal. Philip Nordo denied threatening Britton or making him any promises. There were no threats or promises made, no, was his answer on the stand. He did admit that he told Britton it was a distinct possibility he could be charged with Jonathan Wilson's murder. I made it clear that the district attorney reviewing this, absolutely, there's a possibility you can be charged with any crime, Nordo had testified. Nordo also denied making any threats or promises to Humphrey and denied he told Humphrey whose photographs to pick out prior to the identification of Kyle and Danta. Asked by the prosecution if it were common for witnesses to, quote, go south after giving a statement, later recanting in court, Nordo said that it was, quote, fairly common. Does it happen in almost every single shooting we do in homicide, the prosecutor asked? It's rare that it don't happen. Let's put it that way, Nordo said. On April 2nd, 2012, the jury acquitted registers of the shooting of Richardson and Jones, but convicted him of the murder of Jonathan Wilson, the attempted murders and aggravated assault of Britton and Humphrey, conspiracy to commit murder, and criminal possession of a firearm. Kyle was acquitted of all charges, but registers was sentenced to life in prison. In November 2013, the Pennsylvania Superior Court upheld his convictions and his sentence. The very same month that the Superior Court upheld the convictions, Detective Ronald Dove was fired by the police department for failing to cooperate in an investigation of his girlfriend, Erica Sanchez, who had been charged with the fatal stabbing of her ex-boyfriend. In November 2014, Danta filed a post-conviction relief act petition seeking a new trial on an array of grounds including that Ronald Dove had corrupted the case against him. That petition was dismissed, and the dismissal was upheld on appeal in February of 2017. Two months later, in April of 2017, Ronald Dove was sentenced to 30 days in jail after pleading guilty to helping Sanchez elude arrest and flee from Philadelphia to a hotel room in Rochester, New York. Sanchez ultimately pled guilty to third-degree murder and was sentenced to five to ten years in prison. In November of 2017... Philip Nordo was suspended with intent to dismiss after an investigation showed that he paid a witness in another case. In February of 2019, Philip Nordo was indicted on charges of sexually assaulting witnesses and suspects, including once in an interrogation room. On June 1st of 2022, a jury convicted him of two assault charges, as well as obstruction of justice, official oppression, and then he was sentenced to 24 and a half to 49 years in prison. After Philip Nordo's indictment, the CIU of the Philadelphia County District Attorney's Office began reviewing cases. A CIU is a conviction integrity unit. On July 16th of 2021, attorney Craig Cooley filed another post-conviction relief act petition on behalf of Dante Registers based on misconduct by Nordo in his and other cases. In November of 2022, the CIU interviewed Humphrey, and he reiterated his prior denial of having identified Dante and Kyle. He said that Nordo had promised him a security job and placement in a witness protection program. He said Philip Nordo threatened to max out Humphrey's probation if he didn't cooperate. On June 29th of 2023, Rebecca McDonald, a CIU attorney, 
filed a response to Dante's petition, agreeing that Dante Register's conviction should be vacated because both the prosecution had not disclosed that Philip Nordo had been accused of misconduct in other cases and because Philip Nordo had testified falsely at Dante's trial. On August 18th of 2023, Court of Common Pleas Judge Glenn Bronson vacated Dante's convictions and granted a prosecution motion to dismiss the case. Michael Garmisa, the CIU supervisor, said, following a thorough and comprehensive investigation by the Conviction Integrity Unit, the court today delivered a fair and appropriate response. Once again, Philip Nordo's misconduct and violent crimes, which went unchecked for too long by police and prosecutors, is responsible for re-traumatizing a grieving family and for violating a criminal defendant's constitutional rights. This case, along with the other overturned convictions tied to Detective Nordo, underscore the urgency of meaningful accountability within police departments and prosecutors' offices. Dante was released more than 11 years from the date of his conviction. Investigations into Nordo's misconduct have led to the exonerations of eight other men, Gerald Camp, Rafik Dixon, James Frazier, Marvin Hill, Arkel Garcia, Sherman McCoy, Jamal Simmons, and Neftali Velasquez. Uh, you can find information about this case a couple of different places if you can figure out how to spell Dante Register's name. Uh, the National Registry of Exonerations and the Philadelphia DA's office talk about it in several different places. What did you think of all this? Um, it's not very often where not only do we get um, this exoneration happening, but we also have the uh, investigating the investigator. I don't know which one was the lead, but you know Nordo basically going to jail, right? Um, yes. So they kind of switch places and. It's unfortunate because it illustrates this sort of really tainted uh, scenario. I, I I think that's the right word. Like yeah. because basically it just you know every single thing he's done is dirty, and there's testimony that they actually quote in the summary here about like oh that you know they always change their testimony in court, and it's between this investigator and the prosecutor during uh, the case, right? During the trial that was happening. And that's ironic that that's there because, you know, was it all really going south or was it really just somebody not going along with his lies, right? Yeah. I don't know. There's a moment of reckoning that um, happens when it's recognized that a police officer is a criminal. Yeah, it's interesting because... the. I mean, not all of this behavior, but some of this behavior has largely been accepted behavior over the years for police to do their job. Right. And I, I'm aware of that. And I find it ludicrous, right? I, I agree with you. I'm just saying, like, even if it's not accepted, like, officially, like, you and I have known, like, it happens behind the scenes. And it's just one of those things that you don't, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. You're or right. It feels you're that way. You're absolutely right. And so... I've always found that to be ironic at least. And then like really sad in other ways. But like when you look at any sort of like uh, sensationalized piece about law enforcement uh, that ends up, you know, in mainstream media where something has happened it, through an interaction between a citizen and 
a law enforcement officer uh, where, you know, somebody ends up getting hurt or it's big enough to make the mainstream media. It's always a situation where, to me, it wouldn't have happened that way if, like, the law enforcement officers had remembered that, like, you know, you're a person too. Right. Yeah, that that's like uh, that's a really interesting thing. I I think there are people who have a lot of trouble compartmentalizing their jobs, and the more stressful the job is in terms of like, and I I think I think there's some level of being a police detective that can be among the most stressful jobs. Um, I think it's very difficult to do that job without dehumanizing the people on the other side of it. Because if you don't, if you don't dehumanize them, you find yourself falling into traps. You believe some stories over others. If your bullshit detector is not that great, then it doesn't help you do your job. Does that make sense? It does. But I mean, I, I think you're probably right, but I don't think that that's necessarily what was occurring here. No, no, no. I'm saying that's how it comes to be accepted. But that's not like this guy's long. Like if you you can go read about Philip Nordo, I'm not I'm not covering him here, but uh, and I haven't heard a really good podcast on him yet. But uh, you can just Google Philip Nordo, and I think just court records or appeals. Uh, by the time this is out, you'll be able to see like the the trial transcripts. That guy was doing some crazy stuff. He right. diverted reward money. He was doing all sorts of things that just were unacceptable, unacceptable behaviors. Right. He he was a criminal with a badge and a gun. He absolutely is a criminal, and uh, he no longer has a badge or a gun. Right. No. He'll he'll be in jail for the next uh, twenty four and a half to forty nine years um, for all the charges that he faced. But that didn't happen until twenty twenty two. Right. It's astonishing that there was actually, um, that something was done, but the level of egregiousness that was being addressed here is startling. And I think sometimes it takes this startling level of egregiousness for it to be addressed, right? Yeah. Well, that's all I got on this one. Uh, It's a lot of people that went home for the holidays on the back of Nordo being a terrible cop. Right. And uh, Dante registers will be home. For Christmas, uh, for the first time since he was convicted this year. Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabradiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabradiCreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram at TrueCrimeXS. Or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at truecrimexs at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.truecrimexs.com. We'll see you next time.
All right. So I'm going to tell you guys a, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CRIMEXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance, but plain water can be boring and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated it helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. And right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Excess will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all-natural, real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all-natural, whole food ingredients. And they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors. There's no colors or additives. And there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. 
They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be TrueCrimeXS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creations, if you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but It's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach I use as a secondary flavor, and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. 
Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS. And it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras. And now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime XS. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash True Crime Access. You can also use the code True Crime Access at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code True Crime Access.